Our Old Testament reading this morning is Psalm 67. Psalm 67. Let's hear now the very word of God. God, be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, Selah, that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Then the earth shall yield her increase. God, our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. And all the ends of the earth shall fear him. And our New Testament reading, John 14. We'll read verses 1 through 14 just to get the context uh, again. Uh, our focus is going to be verses 12 through 14. So John 14, starting at verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray the Lord would bless his word to us. O Lord, our God, may the words now of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jesus has told his disciples that he's leaving them, and so they feel troubled and discouraged. Their world is falling apart. So he's been comforting them. He's, he's been saying, believe in me. I'm the remedy for the troubled heart. Even as you see me go to the cross, remember who I am. Uh, I'm the very image and revelation of God. That's what we've been looking at as we've been in John chapter 14 so far. But the disciples don't just feel troubled and discouraged about Christ 
leaving them. They also feel lost, confused. Where's, where's the kingdom that Jesus promised? Is this how it ends with, with just the Jewish nation overwhelmingly rejecting Christ, the authorities seeking Christ's life, and this small handful of disciples huddled in secret in an upper room and Jesus predicting that he's about to die? Is, is this how it ends? What happened to the way Christ started his earthly ministry? Right, Christ's, uh, Christ's earthly ministry begins with him saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And now, Jesus is leaving them. And to the disciples, this looks like no kingdom they've ever seen. So they're lost. They're confused. Why is Jesus leaving them now? What about the kingdom that he promised? And, and maybe we ask those same questions. Where is the kingdom that Christ has promised? Where is the advance of the gospel that, that God's word promises us? Or, or, or we might ask this question. You know, why didn't Jesus stay? Can you imagine how wonderful it would be if Jesus were still here on earth, physically, with us? That, that, that people could see him risen from the dead and reigning, but, but here on this earth. Wouldn't more people believe in him? Wouldn't the church be better off? Wouldn't the kingdom be advancing in this world? Wouldn't we have avoided all the mistakes and sins of church history? Why didn't Jesus stay? And what hope do we have of advancing his kingdom without him? That's, that's I think, what's in the disciples' minds here in this passage, and, and those questions are probably questions that we have as well. Brothers and sisters, Jesus speaks to this here. He speaks to his disciples. He speaks to us. He tells us here in these chapters, it's actually better for us if he goes away. In chapter 16, verse 7, part of this same uh, upper room discourse, he says, it is to your advantage that I go away. It's better for us. It's better for his kingdom, his church, that he goes away. How is it better that Christ is not here but, but in heaven? Well, there, there are several reasons that Jesus gives in these chapters. This morning, we're just going to look at the first. It's here in uh, verses 12 through 14. Uh, it's, it's this. Because Jesus has gone to his Father, we have access to all the resources we need to bear witness to him. Because Jesus has gone to his Father, we have access to all the resources we need to bear witness to him. That's our main point this morning. We begin in verse 12. Jesus says here, we'll do the works he did, even greater works than he did, because he went away. That's our first point. You'll do greater works than these, looking at verse 12. It's an astounding promise, isn't it? It almost sounds... Uh, uh, laughable. Jesus says, you'll do the works that I do. And then he ups the ante. He says, you'll do even greater works than I did. How is that possible? Uh, when I was in high school, I worked summers with my dad doing carpentry, construction work. And uh, imagine that I, as a high school student, I'm helping him with, with a house. We've laid the foundation, and we're just getting ready to start framing the house. And if I'd shown up at the job site one morning, and my dad shows up at the job site, he says, Seth, I'm leaving. Uh, but don't worry, you'll be, you'll be better off without me. You're, you're, you're going to be great. You're just going to do as well as I would have done. In fact, you'll do even better. If my, if my dad had said that, uh, I would have freaked out. 
Um, I knew how to run a nail gun, cut a two-by-four the right length most of the time. But framing an entire house, I was way too inexperienced and ignorant for that. My dad's business would have tanked if he'd done that. Well, what Jesus is telling his disciples here is something like that. But it's, it's more incredible. It's, it's, it's more astounding. He is the eternal Son of God, come in the flesh. He is fully, perfectly equipped to be the Christ. How are these young, inexperienced, wet-behind-the-ears disciples, mostly former fishermen, uh, a zealot and a tax collector thrown in there, none of them's a trained scribe or Pharisee, how are they going to do the works that Jesus did? And even greater works than Jesus did. But that's, that's the promise that Jesus gives them here. How do we understand this? Well, in order to understand exactly what this promise is and how it can be true, we need to understand what these works are that Jesus is talking about. What works does he have in mind? The first place to look for the answer to that question should be the immediate context. Remember what we saw last week in verses 10 through 11. Jesus says there, we should believe who he says he is because of his authoritative words and his authoritative works, that his words and his works are signs, like a big neon flashing sign pointing to who he is. That same idea, his works as a witness to who he is, that shows up all over John's gospel. Jesus' works are often understood in this gospel as works that show who he is, that bear witness to who he is, and who the Father is. So, for example, John 5, 36, Jesus says, The very works that I am doing bear witness about me. Over in John 6, 30, Jesus' enemies demand some works from him. They say this, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? So his, even his enemies are expecting his works to bear witness to who he is and who the Father is. Again, Jesus repeats this same idea. John 10, 25, he says, The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Crystal clear. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. He repeats that same idea again in John 10, 37 to 38. So the focus in John's gospel of Jesus' works is how they are signs bearing witness to who he is. So with, with that in mind, what's, what's he saying to the disciples here in John 14, 12? Well, there are two aspects to it, I think. The first is he's saying, you'll perform the same kind of witness-bearing works that I performed. You'll do some of the same or similar signs that I did, pointing to who I am, bearing witness to me. These are the works Christ did. He's telling his disciples here, you're going to do these same works. I think he's talking specifically to the disciples here, these ones who are going to be his, his apostles, commissioned, uh, put on a mission by Christ himself to be his formal witnesses, as we see in the book of Acts. They're going to be given power to perform miracles like Christ did, not as, not as random events, not as just something to serve their own or someone else's temporal needs. Right? We don't see uh, Paul calm the storm when he's shipwrecked. The shipwreck happens and Paul... Uh, you know, he's shipwrecked along with everyone else. But we see the apostles in the book of Acts uh, uh, healing the lame, being freed from prison by angels and earthquakes, even raising the dead. And they're not just exercising this divine power kind of as, as magic. 
No, they're, they're doing this because God has, through Christ, given them the Spirit to perform signs at crucial moments to bear witness to the authority of their message. It's Christ putting His stamp on them and saying, they are my apostles. Listen to them. He's, he's building His church. He's laying the foundation of the church. And in this crucial time of redemptive history, He's equipping His apostles to work these miracles. So it's something unique to the time of the early church. This isn't something we continue to look for. Yes, of course God is still sovereign and can work however He pleases. And we we pray to that end. But the miracles that marked the apostles' ministry that we see in Acts are a special demonstration, I think, of God's authority accompanying their message. It's it's a a special witness bearing to Christ that the apostles performed uniquely in that first generation. The second aspect, that's the first aspect of, of where Jesus says, you'll do the works I do. But then he says this, greater works than these will you do. What are these greater works? Well, we can't look at the book of Acts and say, well, the disciples did a lot more miracles than Jesus did, or greater miracles than Jesus did. Uh, John says in his gospel, 21-25, he says uh, that that all the books in the world couldn't contain the works that Jesus did. So we we can't look for more spectacular miracles or more numerous miracles in the book of Acts than Jesus did. So... What are these greater works if they're not miracles? Is there anything in Acts that, that gives us some, some help here that's a, that, that is greater in scope than what Jesus accomplished? Well, listen to what Acts 2.41 tells us. This is just after Peter has preached the opening sermon of the book of Pentecost. And he said, uh, of the book of Acts, it's on Pentecost. He says this, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Jesus never got a response like that in the the Gospels from a sermon that he preached. I think this is the the greater work that the apostles get the honor of doing, that the disciples, the church, gets the honor of doing. It's not greater because it's worth more or because it accomplishes more. Jesus is the only one who accomplishes salvation. No, uh, no, No one else can do that. But the greater aspect here is how that salvation is going forth to the whole world. Men and women, boys and girls, are coming to receive salvation through the witness-bearing of the church. That's what we see all through Acts. The apostles preach, and people are converted. Souls are saved. The gospel goes forth. So by the end of the book, uh, the gospel is going all the way to Rome itself. It's reaching the very ends of the earth. These are the greater works. Bearing witness to Christ. Seeing the fruit of conversion. That's the greater work. J.C. Ryle agrees. He says, greater works means more conversions. And brothers and sisters, this greater work has not stopped with the end of the book of Acts. This is the continuing work of the church, to do these greater works, to bear witness to Christ, to see souls saved. And Jesus here promises that we ourselves will play a part in this. And, dear ones, we're not only, as, as Christ says here, we're not only bearing witness to the past works of God, um, Christ describes the very work of bearing witness here as itself a great work of God, as, as greater works than these. That's, uh, that's astounding, isn't it? That as we bear witness to the finished work of Christ, 
our very witness bearing is itself a continuation of God's awesome working in history as he brings uh, men and women to himself through our witness. God's, God's action in history doesn't end with Christ. It, it continues. It, it, it based on everything Christ has done through his church, the gospel goes forward. So we are, we are actors in this great arc of redemptive history. It happens right here as the word is preached. Or, 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 or as we share the gospel, as we speak of Christ in our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, in evangelism, in, in missions, God himself is at work, doing greater works. How is this possible? How is this astounding promise possible? Well, it's only possible if Jesus goes to his Father. He says, greater works than these will you do because I go to my Father. So the only way the disciples and the only way that we will be equipped and enabled to do this greater work is if Christ first goes, if he ascends to heaven, if he doesn't stay here. Now, why, why is that? What, what difference does it make if Christ is here or in heaven for, for our witness bearing to him? Just two things to, to try to answer that question. To, to, to see how Christ's ascension impacts our witness. The first is this. His ascension marks the accomplishment of his saving work. It's sort of the end zone. Uh, uh, it's the finish line. We see this in John 17, verse 4. Jesus there, he's praying to his Father about his coming glory, about the cross, and beyond it, the resurrection, then the ascension. And he, he says this, I've finished the work you gave me to do. Finishing the work for Christ meant crossing the finish line, reaching the end zone, and that's ascending to heaven. That no more could our salvation be complete if Christ hadn't died than if Christ hadn't ascended. It's, a, it's an essential part of how Christ accomplishes our salvation. Because in the ascension, Jesus, as the God-man, he, he's entering his heavenly reward. He's entering eternal life. And it means that everything he did in his life, his obedience, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, that all is accepted in God's sight. That everything is done for our salvation. He's been raised. He's entered the heavenly reward, and so will we. He's, he's opened the way to heaven. He himself has entered heaven. The whole of our salvation has been accomplished. That's, that's what Christ's ascension means. Well, what, is that, what difference does that make for our witness bearing? For proclaiming the gospel? Well, we proclaim the whole gospel. We proclaim the finished work of Christ. Not just the probability of salvation, but a completed reality that Christ himself has already been raised and entered into eternal life. If you trust in him, you can too. We call people to come to the Christ who has opened and entered heaven. That's the first way that Jesus' ascension affects, impacts our witness to him. The second is this. His ascension means that he has all authority. Jesus tells us in John 17, 3, you've, he, he's, he's praying to his Father. He says, You have given him, Jesus, authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Jesus is highlighting his authority. It's an authority to give eternal life. The eternal life he's opened access to, entered into, he has authority to give to others and bring them into. What does this mean for us, for our witness? Well, because Jesus 
has ascended. He's opened the way to heaven. He's entered heaven. And he's given authority. He has, has authority now to give eternal life, to call people to himself. That's why it's after his ascension that we see the gospel going forth with such power in the book of Acts. Because Jesus, as the king reigning in heaven, is making this happen. He's bringing the nations in. He's bringing all men, all his elect, to himself. And this is why he can promise us that we'll do this greater work of bearing witness, seeing sinners saved. It's a glorious promise, brothers and sisters. It's here to encourage us, to remind us of the awesome task God has given us. And it's also here to challenge us as well. Are we doing the work Christ has given us? Proclaiming this gospel, praying for the preaching of the word as God himself works through that preached word. Speaking to our children and our neighbors and our parents and our co-workers and our spouses of the gospel. Doing these greater works. These aren't dramatic things. They're not cinematic or glamorous. It doesn't always look like a revival. These are everyday, humble and ordinary things speaking the gospel to one another. But Jesus says, this is the greater work, bearing witness to who I am. It's a high calling. It's a hard calling, isn't it? It's a, it's a, it's a huge promise that Jesus makes here. And as we see this bunch of ragtag disciples around him, they have nothing going for them. They look like the least likely people to be doing the works of God. Surely we see ourselves in them, don't we? not the most likely people to be doing greater works than these. But this is what Christ has called us to do. How, how are we going to do it? That's where the second point comes in. It's where Jesus tells his disciples in verses 13 to 14, I'll give you all you need. Our second point, Jesus promises us he himself will give us all that we need to do this work of bearing witness to him. So Jesus, he's made this promise, and then he comes... Uh, this promise of responsibility, challenging us to do this work of witness-bearing. And then he comes and he promises abundant resources to do it. Let me read verses 13 to 14 again, just to have it fresh for us. He says this, And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Whatever you ask, I'll do it. Isn't that an astounding promise? Again, he says it twice here, just in case we didn't quite get it the first time. He, he repeats himself, I'll give you whatever you ask for in my name. It's so astounding and remarkable, the promise, that I think our instinct might be to immediately start qualifying it and saying, well, well, he, well let's be careful. He doesn't mean, he doesn't mean, he doesn't mean. And of course, it needs to be qualified. We will qualify it the way Christ himself does. But let's not let that dull the impact of this promise. Our jaws should drop when we read this. Uh, kids, you can imagine your parents saying to you on your birthday, maybe, maybe your parents would never say this, mine, mine never did, but they, uh, whatever you ask today, you can have. Whatever you want for dinner, whatever you want for dessert, wherever you want to go. Would you take them up on it? This is so much a better promise, isn't it? Jesus himself the one who's ascended to his Father, has all authority. He gives us this promise. He's, uh, John Newton wrote a, a hymn that talks about this that we'll sing later in the service. He puts it this way, describing this glorious promise. He says, Thou art coming to a king, 
Large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. You can never ask too much of God, Newton says. That's what Jesus is saying here. Ask what you will in my name. Imagine that, imagine, uh, that, that your father is, is the CEO of Amazon. Net worth of $188 billion. And he says, ask, and it's yours. Are you going to take him up on it? Are you going to say he doesn't really mean it? Or, or, or what he really means, I'll give you enough to scrape by. Well, the, I, maybe you hear that illustration. You say, well, that's different. You know, God, God isn't a vending machine. And of course he's not. We're going to talk about that in, in a minute. But, but listen to Christ's words and feel the weight of them, dear ones. He promises to give us all the resources we need to do the works he's called us to do. Not just some resources or barely enough resources, all the resources we need. Do we believe that? That being said, let's qualify it. Because Christ himself qualifies the promise here. Three qualifiers, three guardrails to keep us from driving off the cliff into error here. First, these are resources for witness-bearing. We see this from verse 12. Jesus says, you'll do greater works than these. Then he says, whatever you ask, I'll do. So he's saying, you'll do these greater works of bearing witness to who I am. Ask me, and I'll, make you, I'll give you whatever you need to do them. He's not, he's not saying, treat him like a credit card. We never have to pay back. He, he died and rose and ascended to establish his kingdom, and he's giving us a role in that kingdom, witness-bearing for his sake. He's promising us that that he'll give us all we need to do that work. That's the first thing. These are resources for witness that he's promising us here. The second thing he says is this. We have to ask for these things in his name. He says, whatever you ask in my name. So this is for his sake, not for our sake. Asking on his merit, not our merit. Asking because of his righteousness, not our righteousness. To pray in his name means we're saying, I know I don't deserve this. I don't deserve an audience with you, oh God. I don't deserve anything but wrath from you, but I'm here asking for this because of who you are, because of who Jesus is as my Savior, as the one who's died for my sins, lived the righteous life I couldn't live, opened heaven for me. That's where our hope of being heard comes from, praying in Jesus' name. And if we're praying in that hope, then then we can't genuinely ask for something uh, in his name, for his sake, that we want to use in our selfish desires. To ask in Jesus' name isn't just a, a phrase, a spell that gets us what we want. It means we ask God for things because of who Jesus is, in accord with who Jesus is, with our hope in who Jesus is. That's the second thing we see here, the second way this promise is qualified, asking for things in Christ's name in accord with who Christ is. The third thing we see in verse 13, that Jesus' motivation in answering these prayers is the glory of God. This is the only prayer that he promises to say yes to. The prayer that when answered brings the glory to God. No prayer that indulges in idolatry is going to be answered with a yes. No, it's, it's the prayer that has God's glory as its goal in everything. The glory of God is Jesus' goal in answering prayers, so it needs to be our goal in asking. Is that our goal? That God's glory 
would, would be the thing we desire most, that the desire that motivates everything in our lives, the thing that permeates our praying more than any other desire, the glory of God. Well, these are the ways we need to understand Jesus' promise to us here. He's promising us resources to bear witness to him. What are these resources, though? Let's, put a little, let's make it a little more concrete, these resources for witness. What does it mean uh, to have these spiritual resources and blessings from God, access to them, to be, to be faithful in proclaiming Christ? What, what, what does this look like? Well, it, it might look like boldness for those of us who are, who are shy, or it might, it might look like love for those of us who are brash. It might look like hope for those of us who are discouraged, or strength for those who are tired and weak, zeal for those who are apathetic, wisdom for those who are foolish. It's, it's whatever we stand in need of spiritually to bear witness to Christ. He's promised to be sufficient for that if we ask him. To get a little more concrete, let's illustrate this. Picture with me the Apostle Paul at the end of 2 Timothy. He's getting older. His body is marked with, with the scars of persecution. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. He's been shipwrecked. He's been whipped. He's been imprisoned. He's been worn down by the cares of all the churches that he's loving and serving. He is the, the walking image of Romans 12.1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You look at Paul and you see that. He's poor. He's abandoned. Some friends have forgotten him. Some friends have, some friends have betrayed him. Some people attack him here at the end of 2 Timothy. He's weak and, and even helpless, we might say. But... but, but what does he say? He's a picture of the Lord giving him all the resources he needs for witness-bearing. Listen to 2 Timothy 4, 17-18. Paul says, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. Even when every earthly resource is stripped away, Paul still has all he needs to bear witness to Christ. The Lord gives him strength. The Lord gives him the words to say. The Lord gives him the opportunity to say those words. The Lord protects him, preserves him by his perfect providence. The Lord is with him. This is what it means that the Lord gives us all we need to bear witness to him. He's with us to strengthen us, whatever our needs are, spiritually, to, to keep on being faithful to Christ. What about us? This is a glorious promise. Jesus has gone to his Father. We have access to all the resources we need to bear witness to him. But brothers and sisters, there's a difference between having the access to these resources and actually having the resources, between, between being able to have them and actually possessing them, having them. Not all are rich in these things. We all have access. Everyone who trusts Christ has access to these resources, but we're not all rich in them. We, we don't all have them, not as much as we could. We talk about how we wish we had a more effective witness, more opportunity, more zeal, more courage, more wisdom, how we wish we saw more fruit. But it's not something that happens automatically. There's an if in verse 14, we have to ask. We have to pray. Are we praying for these things? Are we asking God for these things? As though we really believe Jesus' promise here. 
get up in the morning and pray, Lord, give me everything I need to bear witness to you well today. That's the only hope we have of actually fulfilling his call on us. Brothers and sisters, what do you need? What do you need for your witness in the place God has placed you? Grace for parenting? You know, patience and wisdom to discipline and train and encourage your kids, raise them up under the gospel, loving Christ? Do you need strength in the face of physical weariness? You know, spiritual strength in the midst of, of, of suffering? Do you need long-suffering and love, patience with, with your husband or your wife? Boldness to speak to co-workers, zeal for God's glory instead of the apathy you find in yourself so much of the time. Courage to get outside your comfort zone and speak of Christ. Compassion for those who are perishing. What do you stand in need of? Wisdom to speak to to, uh, estranged siblings or aging parents who still resist the gospel. We stand in so much need, don't we? So much need of, of the resources to bear witness to Christ in the places he's called us to. Pray for it. Pray for what you need for this. Pray on your own. Pray in your families. Wednesday nights with us at the church, if you're able to, in your heart along with the pastor as, as, as he leads Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings. This is our only hope that we have these resources by laying hold of the promise that Christ has given us here. Beloved, Jesus Christ, our Lord, has, has gone away. He's, he's left. He's gone to the heavenly throne room to reign over everything to bend everything, conduct everything to its end for the sake of God's glory, for the sake of his kingdom. And he's promised us a part in that. And he says here in this text, we have access to all the resources we need for it because he's on the throne, entered and opened heaven for us as all authority. And he says to us, here's what you need to do. Ask me in my name for my father's glory, for the growth of the kingdom. Ask me anything, and I'll do it. Let's pray together.